force. We are dead. We are all dead. We're supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know kung fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. This whole thing is insane. 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is. It just is. Especially with the audio version of AB Live. This one, episode 64. Raw, uncensored, and unfiltered. Just like the truth you've been looking for across all your existences. Supercharged by stellar audience participation. We were joined at the Virtual Alexandria by Jake Cobrin visionary artist and high magic practitioner. He discussed the intersection of art and magic that can engineer change socially, culturally, and within the individual. From tarot to thelema, from psychedelics to chaos magic, we threaded a gnosis needle to a place where the esoterica is not just a metaphysical practice, but a practical yet transformative tool of cosmic liberation and inner peace. As a bonus for subscribers, I'll include an interview with Jake's mentor, Lawrence Caruana, on his book, Sacred Codes, where he gets deep into visionary art, psychedelics, and a whole lot of Gnostic ascent through the spheres. The perfect complement to this podcast. Thank you so much for those of you who support this Red Pill Cafeteria. I hope I have served you well. We need Gnosis more than ever, needless to say, in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world and Gnostic times. You won't find this high quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom, or some of the guests and their unique insights, anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. Don't forget my voiceover availability. Whether it's an audiobook, commercial, podcast, video game, documentary, or whatever, I can bring stellar results to your project with down-to-earth professionalism. Some have asked if I only do uh, cult content, and the answer is no. I've done several podcast intros, organic vitamin and music video spots, and meditation course narrations. Also keep in mind that through the holidays, you'll get a free copy of 10 snackable meditations if you subscribe to AB Prime or a medium tier Patreon level. 
The Finding Hermes program is discounted more than 40%, and the annual AV Prime membership is now 20% off. Damning your soul but liberating your spirit has never been this cheap, my beloved true seekers. Let us to our latest AV Live, and never forget to write your own gospel and live your own myth. Anyone else? Yes. Sir, what if a writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens, where people don't change, they don't have any epiphanies, they struggle and are frustrated and nothing is resolved? More reflection of the real world. The real world? Yes, sir. The real fucking world. First of all... You write a screenplay without conflict or crisis, you'll bore your audience to tears. Secondly, nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your fucking mind? People are murdered every day. There's genocide, war, corruption. Every fucking day, somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Every fucking day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. People find love. People lose it. For Christ's sake, a child watches a mother beaten to death on the steps of a church. Someone goes hungry. Somebody else betrays his best friend for a woman. If you can't find that stuff in life, then you, my friend, don't know crap about life. And why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie? I don't have any use for it. I don't have any bloody use for it. Okay, thanks. And we are live. Welcome, everybody, to the desert of the real. We are live. Yes, this is AB Live, I believe, episode 64, in the middle of the holidays, or as I often say, my Gnostic greeting in the holidays is Merry Matrix and a Heilig New Year. So I hope everybody's making it through the holidays. And as I see already, everybody's starting to, to plow into the uh, chat room uh, with the men who still have nipples and everybody else. And I think we should, we're going to have a great show tonight. With us, we have visionary artist and occultist James, I'm sorry, James, that was yesterday. Sorry. Jake Coburn. How are you, Jake? And thanks for coming on. I'm fantastic, Miguel. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Pleasure is all ours. I looked at all your work. I've been listening to some of your podcasts. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's good stuff. And I think your message is more important than ever. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog, uh, James Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, not too bad. Glad I acquired another name tonight. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that. Actually, it's James Taylor Vance. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might have to fool the Archons. You need those passwords to get through the Archons. And in ancient oh, times, yeah. uh, the shamans would dress as women to uh, to fool the evil spirits while they were going on their spiritual walkabout. So. Yeah, they're copying Monty Python. <laughs> 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 well, knowing Monty Python, I'm sure they probably knew that because when you watch their movies, they really had a great grasp on history and para para history and a lot of good stuff. I mean, uh, 
like in the life of Brian, when suddenly the uh, alien spaceship shows up, I was like, man, they are predicting conspiracy culture <laughs> in the or Christianity and science fiction and uh, social unrest and all that other stuff. So awesome. Well, good to see everybody here as always. If you have questions for Jake on any of the topics we will cover, Jake is uh, versed in so many topics, including Thelema, Tarot, Chaos Magic, anything like that is specifically uh, why I like his work is he really applies it to these very uh, changing times when everything is off the table, but everything is on the table at the same time. So uh, even us in the esoterica, uh, need to pivot and find new avenues. So there's a lot of opportunity despite the seemingly bone crunching stress and unknown factors. Uh, so if you have any, oh, yeah, I didn't even, I didn't finish my statement. If you have any questions for Jake, please uh, do it on the chat, lots of question marks, or do it in all caps. Or if you have a super chat, uh, Vance or I will put you at the top. So, I have a few announcements, but first I want to get to Jake. Uh, Jake, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what I was uh, one of the many things I was excited about you is that you went to uh, the school of uh, my friend and uh, mm -hmm. and a uh, a guest that keeps coming by and somebody who understands Gnosticism probably better than most scholars, and that's uh, Lawrence Caruana. Tell us about that and also your journey into these uh, heterodox arts. Sure. Yeah, Lawrence is definitely a friend of mine and. Uh exceptional scholar on Gnosticism as well as a fantastic artist. And I had the privilege to go and study in Vienna with him as well as a couple of other artists, um, Daniel Morante and Autumn Sky Morrison in 2015. It was um, kind of like a dream come true. It was just a total immersion into art, especially this kind of like weird art that I make, which is very niche in a certain way, but it, it was fantastic to be in a culture there where everybody was kind of motivated and inspired about the same things. And um, that school was really influenced by the artist Ernst Fuchs, who is pretty much the great godfather of visionary art, <clears throat> an exceptional kind of um, esotericist in his own way, I guess you could call him almost an occultist, but he was uh, very influenced by Gnostic Christianity as well as the sort of different spiritual currents that existed that he had access to and was also an er an early experimenter with psychedelics and things like that and infused that in his work. So I owe a, um, a great deal to his work as, and Lawrence was his assistant. Mm -hmm. So he created the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art to kind of pass on sort of Ernst Fuchs teachings. Um, and I guess I consider myself in a sense part of that lineage carrying that forth. But um, yeah, I was traveling extensively for about six years, and that included me going to Europe to visit some Psytrance festivals that I had the opportunity to present my art at, um, primarily Azora Festival in Hungary and Boom Festival in Portugal. And then afterwards, I went to Vienna to visit some friends that were already studying there. And I decided to stay because it was such a uh, such a fantastic experience to be around these incredible inspired artists 
Very cool. Very cool. And uh, when uh, when did you get uh, interested in the occult in general beyond uh, studying visionary art? Um, I started reading sort of esoteric and occult literature when I was in high school. I think that a lot of my interest into the occult actually came through musical influences. So the band Tool had a big influence on me and opening doors into, you know, occult ideas and things like that. You know, the drummer Danny Carey was really inspired by the ideas of Aleister Crowley. Mm -hmm. And so I started reading some of Crowley's books, although I didn't understand really any of it when I was a teenager, but it got me started into some of the exercises and techniques. I started exploring meditation as described in the first two books of Liber ABA. And through that, I, I kind of found a lot of benefit through um, meditation, which led me into a more kind of Buddhist path. And my father is a, a psychotherapist, and he's um, very influenced by Buddhist ideas and concepts, and he meditates and things like that. And so I started going with him to meditation groups where I would see um, Jack Hornfield, the exceptional Buddhist teacher and author. Um, and so I started going to Buddhist meditation groups when I was very young, about 16, 17, and uh, that led me really through a lot of different kinds of uh, explorations and paths, including a lot of use of psychedelics and plant medicines, both traditionally and uh, clandestine. In clandestine forms, I've been to Peru and done traditional Chipibo ayahuasca dietas and things like that, um, and used psychedelics in traditional contexts uh, several times, but also did a lot of experimentation uh, just on my own. And that was very formative for me. And um, when I was, uh, well, about three or four years ago, I had the opportunity to go and study at the school in Guatemala called Las Pyramides del Ca, which is a sort of uh, mystery school that teaches sort of uh, hermetic-inspired magic. It's based primarily on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. And it's very similar, I think, to what you might find um, like Edward Casey kind of stuff or similar mm -hmm. to sort of like Golden Dawn style things. And they taught lucid dreaming, astral travel, uh, tarot, the, the fundamentals of Kabbalah, stuff like that. So that really awakened and reinvigorated my interest in the Western esoteric tradition. And they had a, an extraordinary library there uh, with a lot of books by Aleister Crowley and things like that. So I started studying the Book of Thoth and things like that. And I, I mean, I find myself really fascinated by the work of Aleister Crowley because it's like a puzzle that needs to be solved. You know, it's like a game almost to try to decipher and to kind of uh, conjure an understanding of, of these very dense and complicated texts. So when I read the Book of Thoth many years ago, you know, five, six years ago, I didn't really understand a lot of, of, of it, but it really sent me down a rabbit hole to try to find a better understanding of what he was talking about, which really led me to um, where I am now in my practice and into my explorations. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. And you are now in uh, Bali. What are you doing there besides uh, summoning the moon child or the second, the sun child, I guess. If you're over there, hopefully it's the sun child. I mean, I would love to summon the moon child a la, you know, Jack Parsons, like, uh, <laughs> like that would be fun. But um, yeah, just Bali is an extraordinary place to live. It's kind of a liminal space given the kind of, um, you know, the matrix of perspectives here is very different than in 
the West because they have actually a magical culture um, where, you know, spirit evocation and stuff like that is practiced as part of their kind of religious customs, uh, their animistic culture, and they never really had the separation occur between magic and religion as it has been in, in the West and in many places in the world. So it's just an extraordinary place to be, uh, and it's very beautiful, and it's it's been really good to me. I'm incredibly grateful to this island, and it's also very inspiring. As an artist, there's exceptional art everywhere, these, these incredible temples and sculptures. And so I traveled here for the first time about five years ago, and then spent six months here, and I've lived here for about three years permanently now. And I just fell in love when I first came here. It's such an inspiring place to be. Very cool. Yeah, you've been on a you've been on a great adventure. That's for sure. Uh, before my next question, I hope everybody's noticed this shirt. This is from the merch store. It's uh, the new Not Today Archons. It's a great gift, and I swear to you, this is as good as an Abraxas gem, as an authentic Abraxas gem, and warding off demons, uh, archons, uh, your mother-in-law, it doesn't matter. This shirt is awesome, and it works very well. So check it out on the merch store. I thought I'd wear it today to protect us from all that is out there, too. So. uh, Free mission to the Pleroma, too. <laughs> no, 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 no. 20% off, and you got to put the code. No, no. Oh, okay. Free use for that one. Yeah, yeah. We'll give you the password if you buy a shirt. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I wanted to uh, get to uh, what I, I ask all our guests, Jake, especially in these times. Uh, what would you say is the state of magic today? And I know you've addressed it. You are trying to not overhaul it, but optimize it and uh, find a way that it works today. I mean, it's um, especially with all the strangeness that happened in 2020. uh, What would you say? I mean, I have to laugh because some of the stuff is wonderful out there in social media and new religions and all that. But some of them is wacky, as you probably know. People have been trying to cancel Aleister Crowley for a while. For sure, yeah. Uh, th- there was an argument the other day about canceling Zeus, you know, uh, or yeah. how t- uh, some things are closed practice, or how the worshippers of Odin are failures because they converted to Christianity. It's it's pretty wacky, and I hate to yeah. say it, but I kind of love it. But uh, for sure, what would you say is the the state of uh, magic today? here in 2021 moving to 2022 i mean there's definitely some wacky stuff there are people that you know advocate for like demonic rights you know people that do do evocation and and conjure demons and like bind them they're like oh that's cruel demons have rights too you shouldn't do that you know that's for demons (laughs) yeah so like that there's definitely some some weird stuff going on um i would say that the state of magic right now is is i would say that it's probably um there's probably the largest community of magical practitioners that's ever existed at any time um because of the access to information that the internet has given us i think it said in the introduction something like the virtual library of alexandria but we are kind of in that you know like uh if you look at something like the golden dawn or the aa there were a handful of people in those times that were in those groups i think there were at the most like 12 people at one time in the aa mm. and now there are thousands of people who are practicing philemic magic so 
the access to the information has grown tremendously due to the internet and um, the sharing of PDFs and things like that. And you know, some of that was was due to the efforts of groups like the Temple of Psychic Youth, which created a, a, a library of these texts and preserved them and shared them and distributed them and things like that. But I really think that the um, yeah the the access to information is unparalleled right now. Uh, is all that information good? Well, some of it's tremendous, but there's a lot of sort of disinformation out there as well. I'm personally of the opinion that if something works for somebody, it's it's fantastic and they should do it. I'm not really a hardcore traditionalist when it comes to magical techniques and practices. I think that it's up to each person to sort of experiment and to discover what works for them. And if something works for them, they should do it. Uh, even if it's not technically correct based on some kind of tradition. And I'm not necessarily in favor of fully um, adopting tradition just for the sake of it being around for a long time. I think that there have been a lot of different iterations in our understandings of the universe and of magic since a lot of the traditional systems of magic were kind of formulated. Um, And that's why I do appreciate chaos magic and some of the more contemporary forms of magic because they enable you to uh, utilize these kinds of upgraded understandings of the universe and and how things maybe work, which we don't really know. But as our perspectives and understandings shift, this also changes our orientation to, to magic and things like that. Yeah, well said. I think I was listening to your podcast, uh, and uh, you had a solo show where you talked about magic and you're reading off Crowley. And uh, mm-hmm. it was really great because we forget how cogent and clear and scientific Crowley was said. He was saying, test the waters, don't be fooled, da-da-da-da-da. In fact, I, <clears throat> I put a quote, and I think you got it from Dion Fortune, or it's based on, <clears throat> excuse me, or Dion Fortune has their own version that's very similar. Right. But uh, you would say this is... Uh, magic and i like how you i don't know if it's you who said it but you say uh the will is like the dharma because many people still struggle with the will as much as they struggle with magic but uh yeah tell the audience what is magic and how can magic work in this 21st century i think that magic is the conscious endeavor to create change within your reality And it's basically as simple as that. Like Alistair Crowley said, the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. I think that there's a lot of kind of um, people mix up mysticism and magic quite a lot. And Crowley, in a way, added to that confusion by combining those two things into his system. But magic is pretty strictly using conscious willpower to affect a change within your reality uh, to cause things to manifest or to alter in some kind of way. And if it's not a conscious willed action, it's not really magic. You know, people say like, well, I think magic just kind of happens. And yes, that's true. There is, you know, mystery and magic all around us. But in my opinion, it's not really magic unless there's the conscious intent to do magic or to create some kind of change. And uh, yeah, um, yeah, Dion Fortune said that magic was the science and art in in causing change to occur in our consciousness in conformity with will. And I do think that that is how magic works. My understanding or, or theory of magic is influenced by quantum physics, for example. Um, 
in which there are infinite sort of parallel universes occurring at once. And you could see it as like a gem that with many facets and we can look through one of those facets of the gem. And it, it's one possible um, idea of how magic works that what happens is that you are actually changing your perspective to a sort of different timeline or something like that. You're selecting one of those parallel universes to inhabit um, through the use of ritual and through willpower and some sort of conscious intent. I think that the traditional understanding of magic is heavily spirit-based, which is found all over the world, including here in Bali, that there is some kind of magical agent, whether that's a uh, spirit or a demon or an angel or a god or a goddess, that uh, you summon and that you make appeals to, perhaps you bind them or something like that, and then you send them off to do uh, your bidding for you. And this is how magic traditionally has been practiced since at least ancient Greece or ancient Egypt and is found in all cultures throughout the world, including um, in shamanistic cultures in, in South America, in Southeast Asia, here in Bali, as well as in Europe uh, and, and sort of European-influenced countries. Um, and how can magic be used today? I mean, it's really open to any person's will. Basically, you can use magic to create any kind of desired outcome that you would want. I don't think that you can use magic to manifest anything. Like it would be, um, you know, it, it would be unrealistic for me to do some kind of ritual and to be able to fly today. But I do think <laughs> that under certain conditions, you can use ritual to at least create the perception of manifesting something, whether or not that's actually occurring. And I try to remain agnostic as to what's really happening because I don't really know, but I've had many synchronistic and interesting experiences that suggest that through the use of ritual practices, you can seem to manifest things and create changes in your realities. And uh, I just wanted to touch on also the, the idea of will being uh, co-equal with Dharma. That's, that's a matter of debate. Uh, and there's a lot of debate within the kind of Thelemic community if, if Thelema is the same thing as Dharma. But the idea of Thelema or the true will is basically that we have a kind of purpose here, that we have a sort of uh, fundamental, essential role that we play within the unfolding of the universe, like the Tao, I think is, is perhaps more synonymous with it than the Dharma. And that um, if everybody was sort of doing that, that the universe would kind of operate perfectly sort of like a clock or, you know, like the solar system, uh, rather than having so much kind of conflict, which is a nice idea, whether it's true or not. Yeah, well said, uh, Jake. Uh, and I think the issue might be most people want to well most people don't even know what their true will is first i mean i think right. there's one passage i read by crowley and i think is my favorite of all of his passages he said the most important thing we're doing as magicians the most important thing we can do is make contact with our holy guardian angel in other words right our authentic self, our higher self, the the God that knows what our purpose is. And I think uh, that's an issue. I mean, how do you find what your true will is? 
Uh, well, there is the system that Alistair Crowley created within the AA, which does lead people on an initiatory journey through rigorous exercises and ritual practices that would uh, basically create a, a vessel through the purification of your consciousness to be able to receive higher insights and to eventually have the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel, which one interpretation, my interpretation of it, is uh, the merging with the sort of higher intangible forces that uh, is essentially inseparable from what you might call God or the monad or, or the divine. And it, we are that already. So the the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel is sort of a um, purification of our perception to see things how it actually is and sort of to shift to perceiving our lives and reality from a higher perspective. And uh, the idea is that through having that experience, you would then receive clarity onto what your, your purpose is because you are no longer functioning from the lower desires of the ego, but rather you are operating with awareness of the higher forces that comprise the universe. And uh, I think that there's a lot of different names for that experience, um, just like awakening or enlightenment is perhaps something similar. And there are many, many different ways to sort of achieve that. I think that you can achieve Gnostic experiences not only through um, ritual magic or following some kind of already traversed path like the AA or Golden Dawn system, um, but you can also endeavor to reach these states of awareness through your intent, perhaps even utilizing some sort of like chaos magic techniques or things like that, um, as well as the use of psychedelics in, in the right way, uh, meditation, prolonged meditation, fasting, prayer, things like that. It's something that you aspire to and it's, and it's never ending. I don't think that it's, you know, you don't just kind of have that experience and then it's, it's done. You're, you're cooked, you're finished. It's like, we might be able to dip. Um, we might be able to ascend to those kind of higher conscious awareness and then descend again and then ascend again and descend again but having a sort of regular ritual practice as well as setting the intention for such an experience, I think allows people to reach that experience and have those levels of awareness. Yeah, indeed. Well said. And <clears throat> have you ever wondered what would Crowley think of today if he was still alive? I mean, sometimes I think uh, like one of my heroes, Philip K. Dick would be like, I told you guys, surveillance state, digital world, meta, all the things that's happening today. Who would be like, nobody listened to me. How do you think Crowley would, uh, would act or see the world right now? Well, he would have an easier time. I think that uh, the kind of bad press that Crowley got for his behavior during the Victorian age wouldn't really be so shocking nowadays. He could live in a place like Berlin and, you know, like have all the gay sex and take as many drugs as he wants. And like, no one would really think that that's so strange because that's kind of just like what people do nowadays. Yeah. He um, couldn't so hang he, with Keith Richards. Or oh, he would for sure. Yeah. He would be seen as less sort of like a uh, heretical, I suppose, in this in this day and age um i don't know what he would think 
of the state of the world. I think he'd be disappointed to see things like Scientology and Wicca dramatically surpass his Thelema. And he um, influenced both. That's he did influence he did influence both. both, so he can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're both strangely enough sort of continuations of the current. <clears throat> given, um, you know, Jack Parsons' influence on L. Ron Hubbard and um, Crowley's influence on on Gardner. But uh, yeah, I don't know. He'd probably spend a lot of time uh, like arguing with people on Twitter. Is is my, <laughs> perhaps? <Trolling them. laughs> just, yeah, he was a bit of a he was a bit of a troll in a certain certain kind of way. He had a, a conflictual personality. So yeah, hard, hard yeah. to say what you think of the of this this day and age. And, oh, you uh, might not have cared. You might have said, "Look, I'm going to go. Some- <clears throat> I need to find a mountain to climb. I'm going to travel and do some magical rituals and visit all the people." And but you're right; he probably would be disappointed. <clears throat> he wanted a brotherhood of Thelema. He really wanted a more unified world where people had access to higher consciousness. He believed that Thelema was the religion of the future and that mm-hmm. it would surpass Christianity and the dominant religions that exist on the planet today. And um, he foresaw that happening very quickly within 100 years. And since the reception of the Book of the Law, it's just not the case. I think it's if you want to see the OTO as like the main sort of governing body of Thelema, there are 4,000 participants which is mm. dramatically less than the number of uh, people that practice Wicca. And I think it's less than people that practice Scientology as well, as well as, you know, many other things that have gained in popularity. Well, I didn't know uh, Thelema was that small. I always thought it was bigger. And I mean, you can't, you can't argue with Wicca because that allowed, gave a lot of women liberation and avenues mm-hmm. for equality and empowerment. So Wicca was... Uh, a good movement for the latter part of the 20th century and now, and it's one of the fastest growing religions there is. Obviously Scientology is dying because it just shot itself in the foot over and over again. And the internet took care of it, but right. they got plenty of money invested in Hollywood. They'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I'm not advocating for Scientology. I hope it doesn't come off no, that no, way. No, I'm no. just using it as a comparison to see mm-hmm. um, sort of a, they, you know, Hubbard was successful in a certain way with what Crowley was endeavoring to do, and he was very influenced by Crowley. So it's it's kind of an interesting uh, parallel there. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. Well, awesome. Um, before I wanted to get to your, well, let's do questions, and I want to get show the audience your incredible artwork. But let me make another announcement for you. I need to share this screen real quick. Um, there, where is it? Share the screen. Share screen. Do, 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 do. Okay. All right. Well, there's Jake's. I will have uh, some more links, but here's Jake's homepage, and I'll have these in the show notes. Jake Cobran, and Jake will have some announcements too. But there is a new app called Wisdom App, and I'm not one who tries these things too much because I'm, I feel if I join another, if I download another app or join another social media like Telegram, my head's going to explode. I'll just die because it's so much out there. But uh, I really thought I liked Wisdom because uh, what it is, it's a, um, it's a mentorship marketplace uh, and it's sort of a mix between Clubhouse and uh, 
platform masterclass. In other words, you can go and uh, listen to talks of uh, exemplars in a lot of uh, in a lot of uh, mediums like mental health, finance, career, well-being, fitness. It's a very holistic app where you can even join chats with uh, influencers and experts in spirituality, yoga, and do Q and A's. And people, all these individuals, holistic leaders, uh, they give speeches and so forth on 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 the topic so i actually gave it a chance i've uh, downloaded right now i think it's only available on iphone because it is a startup and uh but i'm going to give it a shout a chance because of course i just signed up and i'm the only guy there doing gnosticism so uh i wanted to to invite you guys to join if you want and to do that actually um I'm going to do uh, next Monday at uh, 8 p.m. Central. I'm going to have a little chat on Wisdom app. So join me if you can. I'll remind everybody through social media and so forth. Join me at the Wisdom app. It's uh, at Miguel Connor. I'm going to give a little speech on what I think from a Gnostic perspective will happen in 2022. But if you're there, I'd love to chat with you in a room, in our, in my room, and uh, take your questions on Gnosticism. So check out Wisdom app and uh, let me know what you think. Again, good place to meet, heal talk about therapy yoga meditation anything you want financial advice and in this day and age we need as much help as we can so uh, i do like uh, the whole wisdom app thing and uh vance any questions or from you or comments or from the chat room right now oh uh, we just got one from uh facebook uh I'm not sure how to pronounce it, so forgive me if I screw it up. Uh, Higher Lighter said, what did Jung think of Crowley? What did he say? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I'm not aware if Crowley and Jung were – I mean, obviously, Crowley was aware of Jung's work. I don't know if, if Jung was aware of Crowley, though. I mean, yeah. they – I know that you know Crowley really – um, sort of teetered between a psychological perspective on magic and a, and a spirit-based perspective on magic. And I think that he would have appreciated Jung's sort of um, pairing of psychology with archetypal understandings and mythologies, because I think Crowley actually had, in many ways, a similar perspective on that mm-hmm. matter. Um, so there were certain ideas that they held that were sympathetic, for sure. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. Crowley knew of Jung, and he said, uh, "Oh, they're doing nothing. Jung's doing nothing new. He's just repackaged the ancient mysteries. He's just added a science, which Crowley was doing too, adding a <laughs> trying to <laughs> make it know. more scientific, logical." Uh, mm-hmm. But he was saying the idea of going into the unconscious was going the mystery religions, going the shamans to the underworld. So he was a uh, yeah. Uh, Crowley was definitely appreciative of. Uh, of Jung and what he was doing or mildly amused. I mean, he definitely had better things than what he said about theosophy and other movements at the time. Yeah. He didn't mince words. <laughs> no. But I don't think I've ever heard Jung really talk about uh, Crowley or any of that. No. Neither. So anything else, fans, from you or the audience? Uh, my people are kind of uh, in a thoughtful mood, I think, because there aren't many questions. That was the only one I've seen, unless I missed one. Oh, um, oh, th- there, 
thoughtful mood. <laughs> no, there, there is a thoughtful mood. <laughs> yeah. Here, the, the, people slamming Scientology and insulting this and insulting oh, that. Oh, well, that's not a question. But here's another interesting <laughs> thing. Um, uh, and uh, I'm going to turn this into a question. Our friend Black Eagle out there, who has been uh, uh, less than thrilled with a lot of things that have been going on, but he had an interesting thought, which is, would we have people like Weinstein, Epstein, and other depraved individuals or whatever, if you want to call them that, without Crowley's influence? Did Crowley spawn um, kind of kind of a, um, a, um, a subterranean uh, spirit into the world, do you think? Or do you think that would happen anyway? If you want to see the world that way, then that's your like reality tunnel, and I can't really argue with that. I mean, maybe if somebody holds that perspective, that's real for them. Personally, I don't really see a lot of correlation between those things. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think like Crowley, his association with sort of what people might call like the Illuminati or something gets really blown out of proportion. Usually it comes from people that don't really have a very clear understanding of what he actually taught and what his magical system involved. And even the um, idea of him being like a black magician is is generally inaccurate because um, his system was mostly one of mystical attainment to ascend one's consciousness to higher levels of, of divinity and to basically, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a form of theurgy in a way. And so um, I don't think that there are a lot of accurate correlations uh, with sort of those types of people and well how about his Crowley. personal his personal life though I mean I agree that uh, you know if you read actually what he wrote um, you know he was developing a you know a system and a society and so forth but he his the theatrics his personal you know the way he ran his personal life you know the drug use the depravity I mean he called himself you know the beast and all that stuff so he tried to project this kind of you know ooky spooky um, uh, persona on the world and maybe that inspired some other people to copy him or whatever what do you I think, think about it's that? power I think it always comes down to power that's what corrupts people. like Weinstein and all those people and it's their own trying to be God I mean <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I don't think I personally don't think they were like, oh look, Crowley's this is I think I'll do that. You know, nah. Yeah. He's on the Sgt. Pepper's album cover. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Crowley obviously had a huge influence on sort of nineteen sixties and seventies rock and roll culture. And, you know, people like Jimmy Page and David Bowie were really inspired by him, as well as John Lennon, I think, and some other people. But uh yeah, I've not heard of you know, these, these types of people being influenced by them, it's possible, you know, I, I won't claim any expertise on that matter because I've never really looked into it or, or read about it or anything like that. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, thanks. Um, don't see any other questions so we can move on, I suppose. All right. Yeah. Cause I want to show Jake's incredible art, but first uh, Jake, uh, how would you define visionary art? I, I kind of know, and I look at your arc, and I know exactly the why it's visionary, but for the audience, before we get into your art. You could call visionary art esoteric or occult art, and I think that that's just as accurate a word for it. But generally, visionary art is art that is directly inspired and influenced through uh, a personal mystical experience that that artist had. 
So that could be a psychedelic experience. It could be some kind of spontaneous Gnostic experience. So somebody like William Blake uh, was mm. a visionary artist. But I would also uh, classify like Austin Osmond Spare as a visionary artist because he was using ritual and, and having um, sort of mystical experiences and, and making spirit contact and allowing that to inspire his work. So it's distinct from surrealism in the sense that visionary art generally is – uh, portraying the intangible, the the mystical, the magical, the the spiritual realms and dimensions of reality, and it's through the the firsthand kind of experience of the artist and deriving inspiration from those experiences, and then using their art almost as a way of documenting that. But uh, isn't part of visionary art or how you, the telltale is that there's a it's almost like there's a, a shot and then there's somebody staring out into the distance with a look. I mean, that seems to be uh, one of the telltale signs. I mean, you know, a lot of different visionary artists have had a lot of different kinds of styles. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the work from uh, Bekshinsky is very distinct from the work of Alex Gray, is very distinct mm -hmm. from the work of William Blake, uh, etc. But they're all considered visionary artists because they all kind of traverse the imaginal landscape, what you might call the astral realms, through their own techniques and derived inspiration from that. I think that visionary art is oftentimes a way of an artist... Um, yeah, documenting some kind of spiritual, mystical encounter, you know, like if somebody um, has a powerful psychedelic experience and they encounter some kind of deity or God or something like that, a, a mystical or revelatory, you know, Gnostic experience, and then trying to portray that in their work. And my own work is very influenced by yeah, plant medicines and psychedelics, but also my own mm -hmm. ritual work and uh, the, the, the types of experiences I've had through, say, invocation and astral travel and things like that in my own ritual practice. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, I think I see a question real quick. What yeah. do you think about transcendentalism in art? Is it kind of the same thing, is it? Yeah. Yeah, I think th there's many different sort of terms to classify visionary art. Visionary art was popularized by Alex Gray, but it was also used by Carl Jung, actually, and it was uh, mm -hmm. used by Ernst Fuchs. So mm -hmm. Fuchs, Jung, and Alex Gray have kind of made the term uh, mainstream, but it's been called a lot of things, including transcendental art, including esoteric art. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's basically... It's at least similar, if it's not the same. Is there a, a uh, any movies that you say this movie is one long visionary art trip that you can think of, Hollywood or anything else? Or uh, sure, I mean, The Fountain is a good example oh, of that because it explores, you know, like uh, you know, afterlife experiences. Uh, the I, I do think it's it's a work of visionary art. I mean, probably. Uh, Holy Mountain and, and Hodorowsky's movies oh, would be oh, yeah. considered as such. There have been some movies like this movie Blueberry that that really uh, explicitly portrayed the use of shamanic plants and psychedelics uh, or Enter the Void. And so those are, in a certain sense, works of visionary art as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good call on all those great films too. 
All right. Well, I'm going to share your slides for those listening on audio. We will describe them to the best of our abilities, but definitely go to Jake's website or come to the YouTube. Check it out. I know uh, Sunshine Valerie will love it because she's very much into cool tarot spreads. So cool. let's check it out here. Uh, everybody can see this. Here we have uh, Jake working on something. What are you working on, Jake? This is a painting I made in 2020 after the uh, kind of onset of the whole coronavirus pandemic. And it was my way of trying to sort of imbue some light into the situation mm -hmm. by showing this is kind of an initiatory experience that we're undergoing, something that is actually a catalyst for evolution, even though it might seem cataclysmic. Um, you know, a lot of the sort of traditional initiations, as you know, Miguel, oftentimes are involving some sort of catastrophe or cataclysm that then enables people through this sort of death and rebirth experience to step into a kind of higher evolution of their of themselves, their perceptions of the world and their consciousness. And so this painting was, uh, which is which is called the Coronation, inspired by the uh, essay of Charles Eisenstein of the same name, in which he basically made the same case that I'm trying to make visually, uh, portrays this sort of situation as being one that's actually in a certain sense, positive and evolutionary. It's just difficult to see in this moment. And obviously it's painful and, and such, but I think that in, in the long run, it may actually have a very uh, catalytic and uh, evolutionary impact on the world. Well said. So um, is this what you tell your students and others? This may seem like terrible times like Gandalf in that speech in Lord of the Rings. We didn't, you know, when Frodo is angry and he says, well, all we can do is the best we can do. But is that where yeah. you're telling people that this is the time for your inner artist and that magic can actually help you with depression and things are going to come together, even as it seems we're down in Hades? Well, for me, per I can only speak from my own personal experience it's really helped to foster a period of growth for me in my life that's been very positive. You know, prior to the pandemic, I was traveling constantly mm. um, and I wasn't very grounded and there were certain aspects of my life that were kind of out of balance. And it's kind of forced me for the last couple of years to go inward, to kind of work out some sort of issues in my life and to establish a greater sense of grounding as well as to be able to focus basically all my time and energy onto creating art and studying and practicing esoteric and uh, magic stuff, which has been really fantastic. So um, there's, I, you know, I won't, I won't try to make some kind of trite statement like, Oh, like if you're suffering right now, don't like think of it as something bad because obviously it's been really, really hard for people. Uh -huh. And so that would be a, you know, kind of just foolish thing to say. Um, but personally, I try to choose the most empowering narrative that I can, understanding the mutability of reality and how much it's influenced by the stories we tell ourselves of what's going on. And I would rather choose to believe that this is something that can be positive rather than to succumb to despair and to choose a narrative in which it's just, you know, totally awful and, and, and hopeless. I don't think it is. I think we always have a choice uh, with how we see things and what we choose to do with them. Well said. Well said indeed. Well, let's go to the next slide. Uh, appropriate. We have a phoenix. Yeah, this Beautiful. was a sort of uh, collaboration with Damien Ackles, who I know has been on your mm -hmm. uh, 
show as well, but he created a number of talismans that he charged with his Patreon group and mailed them out to a bunch of people to kind of interpret them and to create different pieces of art with them. And I was really honored to receive from him the uh, talisman of purification, which I, I then created this uh, Phoenix piece to, uh, to represent because uh, the fire purifies and, and burns away. Uh, and I'm very attracted to the, the symbol of the Phoenix and always has, have been. Awesome. It's great. Very impressive. All right. And then we have the Aeon. And again, that's what I see in visionary art. The eyes are looking out. People are looking straight mm. forward. Like they've been, they're, they've been transformed and they see through everything and they're seeing, they're looking right at you too. Like, Hey, <laughs> yeah, wake <totally>. up. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely one of the kind of like consistent uh, uses of, of symbols within visionary art. Like a lot of artists kind of portray things that way. Uh, yeah, so this is part of I'm, I'm, I'm in the process right now of realizing the uh, 22 major arcana of the tarot. It's kind of like the biggest project I've ever undertaken. And I've made six of them so far, And mm. which if I maintain that pace means that I could finish it in about four years. But I'm giving myself maybe more like tend to fully realize this project but you know it could happen uh longer or a shorter amount of time but this is my portrayal of the aeon it's the shin card of the tarot which in the traditional uh rider weight deck is portrayed as the last judgment but a lot of my um inspiration uh for the tarot is crowley's thoth deck and the kind of um his interpretations of the card and so if we are actually truly entered into a new aeon, there's a new spiritual dispensation and a new conception of what an apocalypse would be. And so this is sort of the more uh, Thelemic representation of that scenario with the, the three main Thelemic deities, Rahorquit, Nuit, and Hadit. And uh, there's some, there's a little bit of the linking to the, the Last Judgment card, the, the older one, because you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse here. But the Aeon typically represents sort of the um, the apocalypse or a revolution or a, a, both the, a significant end and beginning of a of a new spiritual uh, existence. Mm, great work! It's incredible. <clears throat> and here we have. Uh, ooh, tell us about this one. Yeah, so this is adjustment, uh, which is the Libra card, and typically represents balance. Uh, and yeah, the, the, the balancing act, it's justice in the traditional Rider weight deck. And I was inspired to portray Ma'at, the, uh, the goddess who weighs the souls of the dead at the gates of the underworld to be the, uh, the sort of deity that I decided to portray for this card. Mm. Goddess of order. Let's see. And now we got the devil. The devil. Yeah. So... Uh, I decided, of course, to portray Baphomet here. Mm, right. um, and, and Ishtar as well. I decided on, on Ishtar and Baphomet as sort of being like uh, masculine-feminine uh, you know, polarities, even though Baphomet, of course, is both masculine and feminine. No. Um, but, but there are uh, sort of like, if you, there are sort of correspondences with like Inanna and um, the horned goddess and um, the goddess of both war and fertility that do have a lot of correspondences to the Baphomet archetype as well. 
And, uh, you know, for me, the devil isn't something evil. The devil always has represented or, or Satan has always represented individuality, uh, revolution, uh, rebellion against authority, self-authority, uh, sort of like the, uh, the confidence in oneself. And it's something that we all kind of need. And that's the aspect of the tarot is that all of these cards are all of us, you know. And so if you, if you find yourself shying away from something like the devil card, uh, it's something to look at because these are just all the different sorts of symbols of the universe and the devil exists and it's something to be worked with and integrated rather than to shy away from it. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And then we got the fool. This is, yeah, the fool. I was actually, people have said it's, it's Jesus. I was actually inspired by the, by the thief in Hodorowski's Holy Mountain, which is uh, actually that movie is one of the things that inspired uh, the series when they, they go into that room and they have all the tarot cards around them in, in the circle. Uh, but I, I decided to portray Harpocrates, the babe in the abyss, uh, who is the, um, the fool represents in a certain sense the, the coming into form, but it's formlessness. It's an infinity. It's, it's the unmanifest. And so the, uh, the Harpocrates, uh, Harpocrates' babe kind of represents that as well, like um, the the egg, the which is also the O of the tarot, the zero, and so it's what we all start out as, and how we progress through the rest of the cards is the development that we we undergo in our spiritual journey and the realization of our souls. Mm-hmm. Well said, incredible. I was saying, I think we had, uh, now we got the sun. The sun. Yeah. I mean, so the work I've been doing with these tarot cards is, is kind of like I'm in a certain sense experiencing or living through the different archetypes as I, as I go through it. And it's been a really deep meditation. So they come, uh, they're, they're being created out of order. They're kind of coming through more spontaneously as I have kind of visualizations or, or awakenings as to what these, Uh, cards mean but and i've been sort of linking them to different archetypes or deities and so the sun for me is is most represented through christ who is the dying and reborn god as well as osiris and so the sun is the ever-present light it never actually dies and so the illusion of it going away is just the turning of the earth as it goes around and so that's the same with these immortal gods um, that their death was only an illusion. It, it reminds us of the illusion of our own mortality, that we may, maybe have a flawed conception of what, of who we are, and therefore we have a flawed conception of what death means, whereas these gods represent the continuity of spiritual life and existence. And to me, that's what the sun represents. Awesome. And I think we got one more here. No, I think we got a couple more. Now we got the lovers. Yeah, the lovers, uh, beautiful card. I just wanted to kind of uh, represent that the lovers is the marriage of opposites. And it's the marriage of the aspirant and the holy guardian angel, or it's the marriage of the human and the divine or the the microcosm and the macrocosm Mm -hmm. so here there's the on the left side there's sort of the dark there's these sort of demonic serpentine looking forces and on the right you have the angel and the phoenix which represent sort of the beings of light and so 
The Lovers is about the reconciliation of those two polarities, the masculine and feminine. Basically, it was my intention with this tarot deck to try to really go deeper into the symbols of the cards because a lot of people have created tarot decks um, that are sort of just reinterpretations visually of, say, the Rider Waite deck. Mm-hmm. And I, I've been really trying to uh, use the creation of these cards as an opportunity to really realize a new understanding of what the archetypes of the cards actually represent and to uh, work with them in ritual and to meditate on them very deeply, as well as to use some of the kind of more traditional attributions of the cards as referenced by Liber 777 uh, and the Book of Thoth and things like that. Awesome, and I think we got one. Oh, here you go. I think this is the last one. Tell us about this one. So this is a, a painting I worked on for on and off four years, and it's the largest painting I've made. It's acrylic on canvas, and uh, it's about 66 inches tall with a hand-carved frame, and it's called Equanimity. And this was inspired by uh, visions that I had in ayahuasca ceremonies, as well as experiences that I had in Vipassana meditation retreats. But it's trying to portray the Buddhist concept of equanimity. And the dragons really represent the disturbances of our minds and our fears. And she sits in the middle of the lotus flower in peace with an open heart. And sort of that heart energy is what protects her from the fears, the connection to her heart and the open heartedness is what protects her from the darkness of these dragons that swirl around her. And so I think it's especially relevant. I actually finished it at the beginning of this year, and uh, it's very relevant to what's been going on in the world because we need kind of balance and equanimity more than than ever uh, for people to not succumb to hysteria, to be able to stay grounded and rooted to something higher or something deeper. Uh, and to be able to maintain that composure and open-heartedness, which allows people to then lead and to be able to actually create a better world. Beautifully said, and your artwork is stunning, and really appreciate you sharing with us that one. And like I said before, so is this Jake Cobran? That's where people can get your artwork, right? Yeah, this is is like my online store. I have a website that's jakecobranportal.com in which I have a lot of links to different offerings. And you can find my podcast there, which is on Spotify and on iTunes. And it's called the Quarantine Sessions Podcast. But it might be in need of a uh, a new name upgrade because I started (laughs) it right at the beginning of the the pandemic. And I feel like it's, it's less relevant now. But I hope you enjoy it. If you check it out, I've had a lot of amazing guests on there so far. Yeah, it's but yeah, you have great guests, and I like your solo shows too. I think they're all great. So uh, thank you, really good work. But we're not done here yet. Uh, Before we move to the next piece of art, I wanted to show the audience events. Any questions from you or the audience? Yeah, do you have plans on uh, making uh, you know publishing an actual deck when you finish all the? uh... Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't know when that'll happen, but definitely it's my intention to create all of the major arcana and to realize them into uh, paintings that would be exhibited uh, collectively in some kind of hopefully permanent exhibition space. This is just what I'm envisioning. It's It's a long time off from now. And then to also publish that as some kind of book and a deck that people could use for both meditation and divination. Yeah, that'd be great. So, uh, how big are the uh, how big are the card paintings? Uh, 
So of those paintings that you saw, they're primarily digital paintings that I ah, create okay. on my iPad, but they're all like hand drawn uh, without any, you know, photographs or anything like that. But uh, I nowadays tend to work digitally first, and then I will use the digital uh, image that I've created as the reference for the painting. So that very large acrylic painting that you saw, the, the, the equanimity painting was done in that way where I first created uh, digital drawings and then I realized those drawings into this very large and elaborate acrylic painting. So I'm planning very on doing the same thing with the, the tarot cards and it might take me a, a long time because I'm envisioning the paintings being very large. Do you use a tablet or, or a mouse or something else? Mm -hmm. I use uh, mostly an iPad for, I have an iPad Pro, the largest size, and I use a program called Procreate with the Apple Pencil, uh, and it's pretty amazing what you can do. Wow. But yeah, I also use a Wacom tablet, and I use a Corel Painter and Adobe Photoshop to, to draw in on the computer, and all kind of, uh, based on certain tools that I need in, in the different programs, I'll kind of like go between the three different programs when I'm working on a piece. Interesting. Wow. These are modern times. Yeah. 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 I don't see any other questions. Um, they're not coming through on uh, the questions tonight, but we may get some more. Yeah. What I wanted to ask you, Jake, is uh, uh, you talk about finding your inner artists and you help people with this. And there's a saying I like to use on the podcast, and I don't, I'm forgetting who said it, but. Uh, an artist is not a special type of person. Every person is a special type of artist. So mm -hmm. is that what you think or you can help people with? Or what advice do you have for people? Because yeah, absolutely. Most people think they have nothing to create. And I always say, you know, if you're in the image of God, you're a creator. You're an artist already. Simple absolutely. as Absolutely. Yeah. Um, to me, like even magic and art are very interlinked because they're both about creation and creativity. And we're all doing, to a certain extent, um, we're all creating all the time and the decisions that we make and the words we choose to say and who, you know, everything that we do. And I've created this uh, online course, Unleash Your Inner Artist, which I've led now two years in a row. And it's been really amazing. Uh, and the idea is that we all can create art. And I think that there's a lot of people out there that have just experienced some sort of trauma through maybe their family, um, through teachers that they had that kind of shot them down and has created a, a lack of confidence and a lot of fear. And, you know, a lot of people also get disconnected from their creativity just based on what life demands of people. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's not easy necessarily, but it is definitely possible for your creativity to be recovered. And really the most important thing is to reconnect with your yourself. Um, a lot of creative work kind of stems from the inner child. So like the stuff that really got us excited when we were kids, you know, like uh, I, this last year I reread the Lord of the Rings books because I was obsessed with them when I was a kid. And it was so inspiring for me to do that because it just reconnected me with that sense of excitement and wonder that I had when I was a kid. And it was really nourishing for my inner artist. So I recommend my students do this thing that I call artist dates. It's influenced by Julia Cameron's artist way, which is also an amazing book that I recommend checking out where you just once a week do something that is just for fun. That really is for the sake of uh, enjoyment and inspiration, you know, so that could be like taking a walk on the beach. That could be, you know, going to the uh, aquarium, it could be uh, going to a record store, it could be watching a movie you haven't seen in a long time. But 
just connecting with what you really love and what inspires you because what we love and what inspires us is a clue as to what we want to create. So if there's something that you resonate with and you're inspired by with another artist, that's sort of the indicator of what longs to be birthed through us. That's really well said, and I love it. And what other techniques do you do you tell your students or those who take your courses that might be useful today? Um, daily journaling. So there's the exercise called the morning pages, where every single morning before you touch your phone or do anything, you do stream of consciousness writing three pages, uh, which I've done consistently for a very long time. And what this does is it creates a discipline around creating because what stops people is they'll begin to create something and the inner sensor will arise, which mm -hmm. says to them, this isn't good, or I don't like this, or what am I doing? This is foolish. People are going to think I'm stupid, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And they stop. So when you do the morning pages exercise, you drill over and over and over again that you're just going to write for three pages. You don't have to show it to anybody. You don't have to like it, but you're going to do it. And I think that establishing a creative practice, and it is a practice, just like having a meditation practice is a practice. Is sort of the same thing where you need to sort of ignore or learn to set boundaries with the inner critic and to just create no matter what. And it's through that process of relaxing and, and allowing something to come through you and actually not trying to control the process of creativity that, that great things are realized. And, you know, like I don't love everything that I make but it's just part of what it is to be an artist. You know, it's not always going to be something that you love. And, and who are you to judge that? Because you're sort of just a conduit. And I believe that artists are conduits and channels for, awesome. for things to be birthed into the world. And you might create something that somebody else really loves, even if it's not something that you personally enjoy so much. Yeah, and you are probably closer to finding your voice or your authentic self. You're wiser. You're a different person. It's a whole alchemical journey. So, Sure, yeah. And I mean, that dovetails into even the true will in a certain sense where I think that all of the exercises that I work with people with in regards to discovering their creative voice uh, just helps people get more in touch with who they really are and clarify that uh, and to um, nourish that. And that is also how we, in a certain sense, discover our true will. Mm -hmm. Well said, well said. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, what you were talking about. I wanted to share this quote by Carl Jung, uh, which I always thought it's wonderful. What did you do as a child that made the hours pass like minutes? Harain lies the key to your earthly pursuits. I always thought it's important because we all have the answer, as they say. There's something as a child that we were doing and we'd look up, or even a teenager, and it's like, what happened to the day? Time lost all power. You know, we were in the zone, as they say. And that's the sort of feeling we're looking for, isn't that, Jay? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I wanted to play a video too. I got a clip from it. I hope YouTube doesn't get mad at me for doing that, for uh, taking your video. But uh, I wanted to show it to the audience because it's very cool. And I think that should definitely check you out. Where are you? Where's the brand? Here you go. Again, it's only a couple of minutes, guys. So take a look. And if you, you're listening to audio, uh, Jake will describe it right, right after. But it is it is gorgeous, of course. But here is Enochian Magic by Jake Cobran. There you
That was cool, and that's only a, a small part. It's like the ending of 2001 A Space Odyssey, where you think the, <laughs> the star child is going to come out, but it's it's stunning. So, Jake, uh, tell the audience about what they just saw. Yeah, so I'm also a musician, and this was a um, musical composition that I created with my girlfriend, Liga Starnets, who's a really amazing vocalist um, and performer. So we decided to create a rendition of one of the Enochian calls, which I'm sure you know all about, Miguel, but uh, for those that don't, uh, the Enochian calls are kind of these like uh, I- these um, incantations that open doors into other dimensions that was channeled through uh, John D and Edward Kelly in their Enochian angel work. And so uh, I composed the music uh, and played all the, the sort of musical components and, and my partner Lika performed the vocals for it. And that was the, um, the first Enochian call, I believe it's called Tex. And uh, it's, it's meant to be used as a kind of a meditation journey. It's about 15 minutes long. Uh, and it, you know, you could use it in ritual if you wanted to, or just simply lay down and, and sort of close your eyes and just see if it, it calls forth any kind of uh, visions or, or things like that, which was the uh, intention behind it. Very cool. And this is the first uh, time you've created this sort of video, or are there more on your YouTube channel? Uh, that's the only one right now, but it was super fun. I mean, music's always been a really, you know, kind of big part of my life, and I'm, it's sort of like a hobby of mine, I guess, but I would love to create more stuff like that. And it was really fun to work with Lika also on that project, and I would love to make more in the future. Hopefully that happens. Yeah, yeah, definitely could lay down and meditate to that one or just have your eyes sort of halfway open. I like guided meditation myself. Uh, when I meditate, sometimes it's it helps a lot easier than, especially when the monkey brain is very active that night. You need a little, <laughs> the counting your breath is not going to work, if you know what I mean. <laughs> For sure. Awesome. And Vance, any questions from the audience, yourself, or comments so far? Uh, still looking. No questions that I see. Anybody that I've missed, please repeat your question because I don't see any. Um, oh, I was going to ask though, uh, um, Jake, is um, are the vocals uh, in that the actual Enochian call? Yes. Yeah, uh, that was okay. the idea. Yeah, I thought so. I, I want to make sure. That's great. Awesome. And uh, one thing you also do uh, a lot of work on is the emerging technologies, everything that's going on right now, AI, uh, NFTs or whatever you call it. You do digital paintings. Uh, so all of this is good. We don't have to worry about being turned into terminators. Or how do you tell people to deal with this technology without getting lost in it or uh, taking over anything like that or... Or am, uh, am I just being a Gen X or I'm too old? I've just lost the boat. I just Well, it's like everything. It's definitely a simplification to say it's all good. It's definitely not. Um, these are you know emerging technologies that have the power for for both great good and and great evil, and they will be used for both. You know they're going to uh, change the world in in ways that are very dramatic and um, that that's both a good and bad thing, you know. Um, but it's but it's happening. It's it's kind of like something that we, in a certain sense, can't avoid. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's tremendous uh, 
there's tremendous potential for the creative uses of all these technologies, especially virtual reality. Uh, and I've had a lot of fun experimenting with virtual reality and creating art with it. It's something I'd like to continue to do. I also use it as part of my magical practice um, and for sort of like a, like self brainwashing, I guess you could say it's, it's extremely powerful in that way. So if you're, I use it for sigilization uh, and, and for, for, you know, entrancement and entrainment. And it's a, uh, it's extraordinary as a, as a technology in that way. And I'm really curious and interested about the interplay between technology and magic. And I think that that's something that we're going to see explored more and more into the future uh, as these technologies become more robust and available. Oh, for sure. <clears throat> You've got yeah. witch talk, meme magic. I mean, it's yeah. here. It's it's melding with technology magic, so it's already happened. Yeah, yeah the ad agency is full of it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah, they they know how to do it too. I did miss a question, Miguel, from before. Sure. So when we get a chance, um, yeah. yeah, only wanted to know uh, what you thought about uh, veganism. Should the practitioner, should we, the practitioner, go vegan for a better spiritual, magical practice? Um, I'm not vegan. I eat meat, and um, I have been vegan at points in my life. I do think that everything that we consume influences our consciousness. I was vegan for about a year at one point, um, and during that time, uh, was meditating a lot and things like that. Um, to typically, in uh, traditions regarding magic, people will undertake a um, specific diet for a period of time as part of the purification rites before performing certain ritual workings. Uh, you know, like in the case of the, um, whoops, Auburn melon working, there's a, you know, there's a lot of specific dietary requirements with that. The idea that uh, you want to purify your consciousness or when I did dieta in Peru, there was very specific dietary requirements that were not vegan, but they eliminated essentially all extraneous flavors. So it was like white rice and, uh, you know, unsalted fish and some steamed vegetables. And that's basically all you could eat. And uh, I would, you know, I mean, there are obviously ethical reasons that people choose to be vegan as well as for health. And I you know, found that uh, it doesn't necessarily work with my my body uh, in the best way and that that i become a little frail and weak when i eat vegan but uh, i would say it's just like up for anybody to experiment with what works for them and to see if that does make a significant difference in in the quality of their their practice or not and i don't think there's sort of like a universal rule with that uh, nor are many historical magicians nor were many historical ma magicians at least uh, none that i know of vegan but uh, it's possible that that could help. She's right. not a vegan, if you notice back there. Are you a vegan? <laughs> no, no. That's meat. That's a bone. <laughs> and you, you talk about Peru. Is that where you did uh, ayahuasca? I've done ayahuasca in um, a number of different countries. But, yeah, I did a traditional Shipibo dieta in Iquitos, Peru, a few years ago, which was uh, – I did seven ayahuasca ceremonies over 10 days and, and also worked with um, a plant teacher called Tanti Rao, which uh, basically uh, the dieta is a way of sort of working with these specific uh, plant teachers that are non-psychoactive but might 
influence the the sort of uh, content of your experiences while you're on ayahuasca or maybe come through in dreams and things like that hmm. very cool very cool and and what is the traditional religions in bali i mean obviously indonesia is muslim but what's the spirituality they're like um balinese hinduism is, is oh, very is unique yeah, it's Hindu, but it's it's animistic Hinduism, and the deities that are worked with here are, are unique to Bali. So, like Barong and Rongda are the two main deities that people work with here, which are unique to Bali. I think they don't really exist in India or in other places. But you see a lot of the typical kind of like Indian Hindu gods and goddesses. Also, like uh, Saraswati is very popular, and I'm a big fan of Saraswati myself. And Ganesh is everywhere. Um, Ooh, my favorite. Yeah, I'm a big fan too. Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. It's fascinating. Their their culture is really uh, unique and exceptional. And there is a tradition of magic here as well, both um, sort of, I guess you could say, white and black magic used for both healing and for kind of uh, less healing purposes. Uh, and from what I know about it, although I don't know that much because it's very, uh, you know, secreted, they do a lot of sort of uh, spirit work and evocation. And in general here, they do a lot of work with ancestry and with spirits. Interesting. And I'm sure it suffered a lot during the 2020, right? Because tourism, that place must really be dependent on tourism. Yeah, I think it's been very challenging for the local people during this time. Um, and it's been quite, uh, it's been quite sheltered. Fortunately, uh, there there has been some instances of the coronavirus here, but it's not as bad as in most places because it's an island. Um, but the lack of tourism has certainly affected things here. And uh, the island's been mostly closed down for the last two years. You'd like to trip to the other now? islands? Have I mm -hmm. looked at the other islands? Like yeah, have in Indonesia? Yeah, have you tripped to the other islands? Like, uh, a, little, the, a little bit, yeah java and indonesia and so forth yeah i've been to java and i got to see borbader which is this amazing you know buddhist monument i think it's the largest buddhist monument in the world or something like that it's really really cool um and i've been to the gili islands and nusa Penida, which is amazing also a place that is really it's the priest it's a priest class island and mm. so there's a lot of magic there and uh, it's, a, it's a really Ooh. spiritually powerful place interesting very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Yeah, I think uh, you were talking as we get towards the end. Uh, I think I put this. This is you, right? Magic mm -hmm. 101 course. And what yeah. can, what, can, what will they find there? Uh, you see this, guys? Uh, please, it's on your screen. Or I'll have it on the show notes again for those of you who uh, are listening in audio. Yeah, so starting in just a couple weeks, I am facilitating a 12-week course on magic in which I've invited some really exceptional people to come as guest teachers. Uh, and we're going to be basically covering everything you need to know, the foundations of how to do practical magic. And so we have, um, yeah, like uh, David Schumacher, the author of Living Thelema, who's a really mm -hmm. exceptional um, teacher of Thelemic magic and uh, Carl Abrahamson. He's one of the founders of the temple of psychic youth. Uh, and so really I've just kind of amassed a really amazing crew of teachers to come. And every single week there will be a different subject with a different guest teacher explaining fundamental aspects of practical magic. And I'm going to kind of 
I don't consider myself an expert on magic per se, but I will uh, like share what has worked for me in my own practice and, and uh, present a bit of my own uh, take on magic. And uh, it's going to be amazing. I'm really, really looking forward to it. I think I'll learn a lot as well. And I'm, I'm really honored to be able to converse with these exceptional teachers. Oh, very cool. Yeah, let me read it here. It's magic with a K and magic 101 course, C O U R S E dot com. So it's pretty easy to figure it out. And uh, yeah, sounds very exciting. So check it out. Any other, uh, th- any other events or uh, content you want to share with the audience, Jake? Anything going on? No, I mean, the magic course is basically the big thing I've been looking forward to and preparing for. And yeah, we're going to cover basically just everything you would you would need to know. You know, theories on the four elements. We have uh, a teacher coming in to share about business magic and wealth magic, um, astrology, sex magic, um, invocations, banishings. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's divination, tarot, art and magic. Um, my friend Mickey Pellerano, who's the founder of uh, Time Lord TV, who's an amazing visual artist, is going to be teaching about how he uses magic to inspire his visual artwork and uh it's going to be it's it's a stacked lineup and it's going to be a really amazing course and i think it's kind of uh unprecedented in a way i've, I've not seen any courses of its kind before with uh, such a lineup of guest teachers so i'm really looking forward to it Awesome. We'll check it out. I'm sure it's going to be great. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, rewarding experiences for you. Any last questions from you or the audience, Vance? Yeah, I, I have one. Um, I, was, I was scoping out the Magic 101 course uh, uh, page here as we're talking. And it says Plato was a, uh, a student of magic. What do you know about that? Well, I mean, you know, most Hermeticism and uh, things like the Golden Dawn and, and, uh, that type of magic are essentially neoplatonic forms of magic. You know, he spoke a lot about uh, the daimon, which is uh, Socrates also spoke about, which is very similar to the the concept of the holy guardian angel. Uh, so he, he, you know, he actively spoke about being in contact with higher intelligences, and that's where he would derive his information from. And yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the platonic ideas are kind of like the uh, scaffolding on which all kinds of uh, 19th and 20th century magic were built on. Yeah, well said. Yeah, that's, that's great. Now, the Temple of Set is just basically Platonism with a veneer of occultism. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is, the world of ideas and all that. So, uh, well, and Jake, what's the most amazing thing you've seen manifest as a result of magic, either from yourself or some other practitioner? I mean, something that like would knock our socks off, so that convince you, yeah, you know, that this is uh, definitely we can affect reality in non-ordinary ways. I mean, I prefer to not share too much about what I've used my magic for. Uh, I have like superstition about that, that it like, I don't know, uh, drains the energy away from it or whatever. But I do like introducing magical techniques to friends and to kind of like help them, you know, with with certain things. And I've, I've taught like sigil magic to friends who have like manifested like, you know, the loves of their lives, like right afterwards or, or found like, you know, amazing career opportunities and, 
things like that. And it's, it's really practical and it's really useful. And, you know, to just take time to really focus your will and your attention on what you want to create, uh, even for a short amount of time per day, like 20, 30 minutes is an exceptional thing that not that many people for whatever reason do, but it's such a incredible way to just narrow in your focus on what it is that you really want to create and to, to do that. Uh, and I've, I've seen it have a really interesting and powerful effects on not only my life, but, uh, um, in the lives of, of many people that I've, I've been, uh, close to my, my girlfriend has pet owls, which is, which is very cool. Uh, and they're, they're adorable, cool. but, uh, her owl, she doesn't keep them in cages or anything and allows them to just, you know, like fly around and do whatever they want to do. And she keeps her doors open most of the time. And one night her owl, uh, disappeared and flew away and was gone for, for three, four days and with not being able to see any sign of her. And so she became really worried. And so she did a ritual. I think she invoked Athena who has a lot of ties to, um, to owls, uh, as well as I think she worked with some, some, I think it was Archangel Azriel or something. Um, I I don't, I don't know exactly because it wasn't my ritual, but she did this ritual for the owl to return. And then, um, Basically, the following night, at like four in the morning, that, that her owl Luna just flew right back into the house and uh, right onto her on, onto her bed, which was extraordinary considering there was no sign of her whatsoever before that. So I think this stuff really, really works, and uh, I'm I'm a believer, and I don't mind admitting it because of the experiences that I've had. And it's awesome also to introduce these concepts to people and to see how they can have such an empowering, positive effect on people's lives. Yeah, you reminded me years ago, I used to do a lot more of this, uh, but um, if I, um, I, you know, I'm a programmer, so um, uh, I, I, and this is going to date me when I tell the story, uh, if I had a really uh, difficult bug, right, you know, and like, I worked on a big operating system. So there's like a huge thick listings. Right. And so finally, when I gave up on trying to find it the ordinary way, okay. I'd use what I call my find power and I'd fly, you know, uh, riffle through the listing and I put my finger on it. And many, many times it was either close or right on the spot that I was looking for what the problem is. And yeah, Yeah, I've had enough experiences where, it's too coincidental to say there's nothing to it. The way things manifest is sometimes so extraordinarily synchronistic um, and effortless that it must be magic. It must be. Something's going on. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we hopefully people have learned in the last two years that it's, it's a weird world out there and busy yeah. universe and uh, we're not going back to normal so embrace your inner magic and your inner artist and uh make the best of it chaos is a ladder as i like to say too uh so awesome this has been a great conversation uh thank you very much for those of you in the chat room great comments great questions as always i don't think i have any other announcements uh yeah the merch store uh, if you need any voiceover work, please keep me in mind. I'm doing a lot of books and commercials, so I'm here for you. Um, next week, we will do uh, a Gnostic holiday special. So we're going to do a show on Lucifer because 
what else speaks the holidays and Lucifer. So we're going to get deep into old Nick from ancient times to Samaria to the Renaissance everywhere. So uh, sympathy for this devil. You're going to enjoy the show. And then some other very cool shows. The Matrix is coming out at the end of the month. We are going to do a live show right after it comes out. And we are going to break it down for better or worse. Non-spoilers and spoilers too. So excited about that one. And a lot of good shows coming up uh, in the future. Simulation, reality, Manly P. Hall, Gnosticism, good stuff. And I really appreciate you guys making it happen. So first of all, Vince, thanks for uh, holding the ship down and uh, sailing us through those uh, seas of fate between the gnashing rocks of orthodoxy. Oh, yeah. Holding the course. Got the tiller there. <laughs> arr, arr, arr. <laughs> arr. <laughs> and last of all, but certainly not least, Jake, I really appreciate you coming to the virtual Alexandria. Really enjoy talking to you. And uh, we look forward to you uh, creating more art and more magic. Yeah, this was super fun. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, the pleasure is all ours. So have a good night and please have uh, good holidays if you can. And uh, we should probably focus on visionary art because a lot of people still might not know in that term visionary. gets uh, bandied about a lot in today's language. But visionary it actually means you have a vision first and then you paint. Because I know in one part of your book, Lawrence, you talk about how your, your master, Ernst Fuchs, came to you one time and said, look, don't just uh, focus on the painting, but focus on the vision. Mm-hmm. And also that the creation of the painting is a process itself. So, uh, yes, you can have a vision and then you can try to record that vision in paint. That's part of it. But also the painting process itself becomes uh, an immersion into seeing so that uh, while we're painting, we're actually immersed in a different way of seeing. And so it becomes, you could say, a visionary experience as well. Uh, it's as much a process as anything else. It's, uh, and I would even go so far as to say sometimes it requires an, an initiation because uh, it is an altered way of seeing, an altered form of perception. And uh, when it first kind of occurred to me, uh, I was pretty amazed at how we can broaden our vision, change our usual perception of things. So uh, I was in a certain sense, initiated, although I don't make a big deal about that. It's just something that kind of happened naturally by working with my master um, on his paintings and being introduced to these ways of seeing. And uh, what would you say are some of the features of visionary art? For example, you you mention in your book somebody like H.R. Geiger, which I like because we many people know his art, and some have said nobody draws archons better than H.R. Geiger, and I remember scholars saying his 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 art is not about our fall into matter, but our fall into technology, how technology and humanity get blended in together. So what makes H.R. Geiger a visionary artist and what's maybe some of the features so the audience can know? Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting that you mention him because he's probably best known for creating the alien uh, design. Right. But uh, his work, which is these airbrushed nightmares, uh, really capture the Gnostic spirit. What you often have in his work is a, a female figure, often ghostly white, and she's trapped in this 
horrible techno technological hell, which is uh, raping her in various ways. And I think if you were a feminist, you might read it one way, but as a Gnostic, you would kind of see that image of the white female as the soul. And right. that is very much portraying the way the soul is trapped in this archontic uh, world, trapped. And with, we ourselves are experiencing that daily pretty much through technology. Um, and so his vision is a very dark, dark vision, which makes it unique uh, in visionary art, which tends to be more spiritual. But uh, I love that aspect of his work. And visionary artists of the past, we might think of uh, Hieronymus Bosch, or uh, William Blake, or uh, Gustave Moreau. And then moving into the 20th century, uh, Ernst Fuchs, who emerged in the post-World War II period of Europe in the 1950s, was definitely what we call the godfather of visionary art. And he knew well H.R. Uh, Geiger and other artists who you might recognize, Matty Klarwein, he did the uh, album cover of Abraxas by Santana, and that's a very oh, wow. uh, visionary work of art. So, uh, Clarvine and H.R. Geiger uh, are, are, you know, this older generation, Robert Venosa being another, and it's kind of spread uh, across the planet in its most miraculous way of uh, artists who are really doing their best to um, create a kind of art that first of all, revives painting and the skills of painting, but also uh, the visions that they're having, visions of the sacred, but also it can be visions of darkness, you know, visions of darkness, visions of light uh, are emerging in their art. And we tend to see a lot of uh, figurative work with strong colors and energy vibration and sometimes geometry and so on. It's a movement which uh, has spread through the planet, mostly through the transformational festival scene, uh, but also through the Internet. And uh, I'm pleased to say that, for example, our academy in Vienna, we attract students from as far as Brazil or India or uh, North America, South America, all across the world, really. And uh, so it's become this international phenomenon. Probably the best known visionary artist today is Alex Gray, if you're familiar with his work, who uh, oh, yeah. who did the uh, album covers for Tool, for example, and that spread his work across the, the planet as well. I could give you a list of names, but those are the important ones. That yeah, that's a, you know, that's a great list. That's definitely a who's who's. And, of course, a mutual favorite of ours that include Vance, too, is... Uh, William Blake, I mean, he really was Gnostic, he was visionary. I like in your book how you say he was very anachronistic. That what, was, he thinking, was he ahead of his times, you think? Or tell us how you feel about uh, England's poet. Yeah. Uh, well, quoting a bit from Ernst Fuchs, uh, what makes visionary art unique is that it's this underground current which uh, is not at all linear or historical. So a visionary artist like William Blake, he seems to be ahistorical or non-historical. His work echoes uh, the styles of so many different cultures and even its poetic quality. He's quoting the Bible, but uh, he also seems to be quoting scriptures from around the world. He uh, transcends his time 
in so many ways that uh, it's like history itself is linear, but the visionary sphere is uh, eternal time. And as we know, Blake was the one who, you know, peered through the doors of perception and cleansed the doors of perception and saw eternity uh, in a moment. Uh, and so he has this quality of, of transcending the time and by doing that, speaking to us directly in our time. I really feel like that's what makes him unique uh, as an artist and a huge influence uh, on Fuchs, on myself and on visionary art in general. Oh, I agree. He's great. Uh, no doubt about that. And something I wanted to cover for sure is, uh, which I found uh, very interesting, is the idea of heriatic and humanistic art. And I think this is very important to know even within the visionary art space. Could you tell the listener a little bit about that? Sure, I'd love to. So uh, in the book, I do distinguish between hieratic and humanist art. Hieratic simply being a Greek word for the sacred and the sacred traditions. When you look at visionary art, we often reference uh, other traditions. Those can be Eastern, like Buddhist or Hindu, or more tribal kind of societies or ancient Egypt. And a lot of the sacred art tends to be very symmetrical, tends to depict deities, tend to be very still. The hand gestures are these frozen mudras, very symbolic. Um, and so the whole hieratic tradition, in a way, uses painting to create a, a mirror reflection for the sacred. Um, we ourselves here in the 21st century are coming from a tradition of painting in the West that emerged since the Renaissance. And the Renaissance, looking back to ancient Greece, this is all uh, humanist. And humanity, the human, became the center of art, the main concern of art. And when you look at humanist art, which is to say classical Greece and the Renaissance onward until today, uh, the figure tends to be very dynamic, the, very, the face is very expressive, the hands are gesturing, but what they're gesturing is the passions of the soul, that they're really giving you human expression, powerful human expression. Um, so we are ourselves in the West kind of still at the tail end of this humanist tradition where humanity is the central focus of art, but Western art especially with visionary art, is starting to open itself up to those other traditions where the sacred, the divinities, they were the center of, uh, of what we depict in a work of art. So visionary art has this task, I say in my book, of uniting uh, the hieratic and the humanist traditions, of creating a work of art where we still have humanity and human feeling and the passions of the soul, as being de uh, depicted through the figures. But at the same time, uh, we're trying to still the eye and create an image for contemplation. And in that sense, create an image like you would see in the Buddha, for example, or a Hindu deity or ancient Egypt, where uh, we still the eye to a point of focus and contemplation. And that becomes a very different form of seeing. And I would argue that uh, once you do learn to meditate or contemplate on a work of art, you begin to see it very differently. Instead of racing your eye all over the painting in search of some kind of uh, narrative <laughs> or movement, 
you're really uh, entering into the work of art. Uh, an expression I used in an earlier book, which is taken directly from the, uh, from the Gospel of Philip, is uh, enter through the image. And uh, it really becomes an experience of entering through the image, uh, not being obsessed with the surface qualities and textures of the paint, but rather the vision, the deity, the experience that awaits us on the other side of that doorway. Yes, indeed. I think in one part, uh, you have a great line. You say, uh, when you're uh, painting, you just don't see the divine, but the divine sees you. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we forget that uh, all of works of art used to be placed in temples, and you would enter into a temple and the purpose of entering into a temple was to be seen by the deity rather than to see the deity. And uh, the work of art had that power of uh, the vision of the statue was commanding, and you would surrender your gaze to the statue. Uh, this then becomes important for us as visionary artists where we want to open our eye to divine seeing, uh, get kind of our human ego out of the way, which tends to be very critical or negative or whatever. Um, And really, by surrendering our sight to what's emerging as we paint, uh, we're really trying to uh, participate in the divine act of creation. Um, It really is something, again, that I come back to through the Apocryphon of John, Um, that it creates a whole new way of understanding when you think of uh, the creative act as being this act of seeing. Um, In the Bible, the book of Genesis, you know, it begins, uh, and God said, let there be light. But that's a very verbal thing, and we understand that because with our voice, we actively speak. If it was changed to, and God saw, and there was light, you would come much closer to this creative act of vision that we get in the Apocryphon of John. And this is what I mean by divine seeing, that uh, the divine creates through vision, and uh, we have this active form of seeing that creates the cosmos around it, uh, particularly in the Apocryphon of John. And that's where that book really resonates me at a very deep level. Same here. And uh, I like what you write. Also in Sacred Codes, uh, you, you, you say the author of the Apocryphon of John or the Secret Book of John or the community behind it, they weren't just drawing some rational map about how they thought was the mind of the divine and how we fell out. But these were based on very deep experiences, don't you think? Absolutely. Um, You know, one example I can give you is how they constantly uh, refer to the eons as a watery light. And uh, it's a very powerful image of the watery light. So the one sees images or reflections of itself in the watery light. And definitely uh, when we enter the visionary sphere, when we enter into the field of visions, it has that quality of this translucent kind of depths of watery light. And uh, everything that we see becomes like an immediate reflection of our thoughts, of our feelings. Uh, And uh, I I 
can't imagine that the people who wrote these texts were simply making it up as they went along. Rather, they were using language to the best of their ability to capture the experiences they were having uh, when they were immersed, you know, in meditation or contemplation or whatever, when they were immersed in this peak experience of experiencing divinity uh, and trying to capture that then in, in those words. Um, if you don't mind, I have a little quote for you. I sure. Guess. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Um, and it's speaking of the one, which is to say uh, the divine source of all things. And it says, uh, for it is he, the one who looks at himself in his light which surrounds him, namely the spring of the water of life. And it is he who gazes upon his image, which he sees in the spring of the spirit. It is he who puts his desire in his water light, which is in the spring of the pure light water which surrounds him. And then the classic moment begins that, uh, and his thought, which is to say, Nus performed a deed, and she, uh, Enoya, came forth, she who had appeared before him as an image in the shine of his light. She came forth from his mind, noose, and this is the first thought, his image. So this whole idea um, of what's called the noesis, noeseus, noesis, the divine one as a thinking of a thought of itself thinking, uh, this is taken from Aristotle, but you get this image of consciousness, consciousness expanding outward into the watery light and as it does so it is uh thinking and then suddenly it reaches this moment of solidity which is the image that takes form in the watery light and that's the thought so it's now thinking a thought which we basically understand as consciousness but the next step in the creation is thinking a thought of itself thinking, and that becomes the reflection or the self-consciousness. Uh, so this really becomes the divine trinity in, in Gnosticism, the father, the mother, and together they create the child. Um, and this child then eventually, we realize, becomes Christ or Christ and Sophia together as this kind of um, asexual being. Um, so. In the Apocryphon of John, you have this kind of oneness which expands into multiplicity, and as it does so, it remains one at its source, the, 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 the trinity that is still the unity. Um, and at the same time, it's this eye in the center of the watery light, and as the eye looks and sees, it sees reflections of itself, differing reflections of itself. And I, I, I am kind of amazed at this concept of what I call the, the mirrored sphere, where you have an eye in the center of this mirrored sphere, and as it looks outward, actively creating its vision, the mirrored sphere reflects back to it its first thought. And then the remainder of the creation is basically all the other things that it can create within the mirrored sphere, and that becomes, in fact, the entire cosmos, uh, or at least the upper eons, as we say in the, in the Gnostic tradition. It almost seems like a hologram of sorts, right? One thought spreading out. Exactly, and being unified at the source, though. So, exactly. Um, 
Macrobius describes it as so many mirrors, row on row, reflecting the same source of light. And it's a, it's a beautiful idea that you have these mirrors in rows upon rows upon rows expanding outward in multiplicity, that they all reflect back this one to itself in this amazing number of different guises as male, as female, as adult, as child, as, you know, the four lights, as the 12 eons and so on. Yeah, I I get shivers when I... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, it's wonderful poetry. It's mystic and you can meditate on it. And you also write in your book, Sacred Codes, about how the Gnostic when they were doing the rituals of ascent, as a, and a couple of texts say the way of descent is the way of ascent and vice versa, but they wore these uh, bodies of lights. Uh, what are those to you, Lawrence? Yeah, well, now we're getting into the later chapters of the book, and I start to talk about theurgy, which is a specific tradition in the West coming from the same place as the Gnostic texts, uh, coming from Alexandria in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, even as far as the 4th centuries AD. And the theurgists, uh, beginning with, say, Iamblichus, who wrote on the mysteries, or Proclus, who wrote on the sacred art, they were trying to describe what was going on during these mystery uh, celebrations. And basically, uh, the theurgists were the ones who consecrated a statue to make it sacred, and then also uh, contemplated the statues, because in a certain sense, a sacred image only becomes sacred once it's activated. And to activate it, the divinity has to be seen, it has to become present. I said that it sees you, and that's true, but also you have to, in a certain sense, see the divinity in the statue for it to really be a sacred image. So the theurgists then, like uh, Ian Blickus and Proclus, they went to great depths to describe uh, this process of consecrating a statue. And it went to the extent that um, in their meditations, they would uh, ascend through the cosmic spheres um, So if you know the Ptolemaic universe or cosmos that existed at that time, you had seven cosmic spheres that you could see in the heavens, and they became like a spheres within spheres, a kind of hierarchy. And your soul, and we see this in Gnosticism as well, that your soul would ascend through the cosmic spheres. Um, And so when they were doing their contemplation or their meditation, their soul would ascend through the cosmic spheres. But uh, as we know in, say, Gnosticism, uh, they're actually quite demonic. You know, they're trying to trap you. They're trying to capture your soul and throw it back down. So uh, each person needed a form of protection in their journey through the cosmic spheres. In the case of the theurgists, they talked about... um, the Okema, and the Okema being this kind of um, vehicle for their soul to protect it. It was this spherical vehicle. Um, in the case of the Gnostics, I tend to believe that this idea of the garment of light was very much the same thing, that 
the Gnostics went through this ritual to put on the garment of light, and one of the functions of the garment of light was to protect them uh, in the visionary ascent through the cosmic spheres. And we, we definitely see this in uh, the Apocalypse of Paul or Zostrianos, where uh, the figure is meditating, and as they do so, they're ascending through the heavenly spheres. And uh, sometimes they need special words or names, sometimes they need signs or sigils, but they also need to just uh, be in a certain state of mind where they don't feel fear. You know, the, the dialogue of the Savior, for example, says that if you feel fear, they will devour you. So, so that brings right. up the yes, need protection, that uh, the moment feel, fear emerges, then the Archon becomes this image of fear. And uh, it brings me back to this idea of the, the mirrored sphere, where you are actually in the visionary, uh, in, in, in visions, you are actually immersed in a mirrored sphere. And the moment that you feel fear, then images of fear become, are materialized and become reflected back to you, you know? And if you fear, uh, sorry, if you feel, let's just say, desire, uh, immediately images of desire materialize, but then you become entrapped within those images of desire that appear in the mirrored sphere. So the visionary ascent was, in a certain sense, this form of seeing within the mirrored sphere where you are passing from one sphere, which is to say one state of the soul, to another from fear to desire, from desire to envy, from envy to pride, from pride to... And each of these corresponded to a certain planet, to a certain archon, to a certain lower eon, you know, in the Gnostic tradition. So the, the Gnostics and, and the theurgists, they had to uh, strip away first the body and all the accoutrements of the body. Then they had to strip away the soul. And the soul had these seven garments, uh, like fear and desire and pride. And once you stripped away the seven, the, the, it was actually five garments of the body, earth, air, fire, water, and the ether. And seven garments of the soul, which correspond to the seven planetary spheres. Then you could finally enter the middle, you know, into the, the, the fixed stars. And beyond that, into the upper eons, which are really the, uh, the, the, the reflection of the lower eons, but it's now in the stilled eternal archetypes, you know, as Plato called them, the Ide, uh, where in the upper eons, we're no longer in a place of the passions of the soul, but really of the higher states of mind or the higher states of consciousness, like memory and reflection and, um, and so on, including love and uh and uh grace and so on you know the apocryphon of john lists all of these as the uh the upper eons and they're basically forms of consciousness that the contemplator or the meditator could experience once they'd pass through the lower eons uh of their own body and their own soul reflected back to them yes How's that? that's great you know i think you hit it on the head that is definitely uh you might say, uh, as uh, scholars have written, this is uh, ecstatic rituals. These are shamanistic rituals where the Gnostics purified themselves and 
went on these visionary flights uh, across higher levels of consciousness. I think you definitely nailed it very well. But um, a question I had is this sort of visionary scene that the Gnostics had, that the Neoplatonists had, and so forth. This actually started before, long before them, didn't it? Yeah. Um, now we're coming into uh, this... I mentioned humanism and the hieratic, and humanism, we are the heirs of the humanist tradition, which started at the time of the Renaissance. And one thing which started at the time of the Renaissance was the idea that vision is passive, that light kind of reflects off the object and enters into our eyes and carries with it uh, the object that we're looking at. And I have no problem with that. I think vision can be passive. But before the Renaissance and going back back to Gnosticism, so Alexandria in the 1st and 2nd centuries AD, but even further back to Plato, 300 BCE, and then um, the pre-Socratic philosophers, we discover that vision was understood as something active, that the eye cast forth this uh, light from within. And it was this intraocular fire, as they called it. They, they referred to the eye as a lantern. And so vision was understood as active. Vision was understood as uh, light going outward from your eyes. And in Plato's description, it then uh, fused with the light in the surrounding air. He said, like becomes like. So it fused with the light in the surrounding air, and vision then spread outward. Uh, that's definitely the model of vision that you get in the Apocryphon of John, and in really any Greek text. I, I even cite Euclid in his geometry, for example, um, that when you read Euclid closely, he's referring to vision as this active thing where, where vision streams outward from the eye. I think it really helps us as humans today to consider our vision or our seeing not just as this passive act of receptivity, but to think of us as creating the uh, cosmos around ourselves, that we're creating the reality that we're making around ourselves. And the more we kind of take responsibility for what we, where we cast our eyes and what we do with our visions, you know, um, the more that we're engaging in that older model of seeing, uh, what was called the extramission vision, uh, where we're the, in a certain sense, you could even open your eye and surrender it to divine vision because the, the flame, the intraocular fire that you had in your eyes wasn't just human. It was divine. You know, that it was the deities that planted the interocular fire within us and gave us the gift of vision. So uh, we could see as the gods see, and we see thanks to the gods. Um, you know, coming back to the Apocryphon of John, the deity, the one, it is consciousness and self-consciousness. Now, do we say that I'm conscious and I'm self-conscious because of my humanity? Or does our consciousness and self-consciousness, our awareness, come to us from someplace higher up? And I would argue that the moment we reflect upon that and ask ourselves, where does consciousness come from? To me, it's a gift of the divine. And we have to kind of 
open ourselves up to that divine uh, gift of becoming aware. And vision, thinking, they're really the same thing, that it's really about divine consciousness or divine vision passing through us as we open our minds, as we open our eyes you know, to the source from whence we came. That was well said, Lawrence. And uh, what about you, Vance? You have a question. Uh, this is really fascinating. I know. I've been following it. Um, I've got a million questions, but I'm going to have to limit myself. Uh, Lawrence, what do you think about the concept of the fact that each one of us, this is going to sound funny, is the only one we are the monad looking out at the world through a filter that we mm -hmm. somehow chose and uh, of course that dovetails into everything you've been saying mm -hmm. in my mind i'm um, mm -hmm. just wondering what you think of that yeah philosophically that's called uh, solipsism and uh there was a philosopher wittgenstein who wrote an amazing sentence he said the uh, i am the world and i, I think uh, that point of view is absolutely valid, you know, that, uh, but the only problem with solipsism is that uh, you become trapped in a certain, I would argue, egoistic kind of point of view, that uh, depending on what you mean by the me in that statement and everything oh, yeah. I speak is it's mine. It's not, most people think that, but what I'm talking about is kind of a multi-solipsism where everybody is in that state yeah well the kind of vision i've had recently i i mentioned to you this idea of um mirrored spheres and so we are in the center of a mirrored sphere now imagine this uh that's called the flower of life where you have interpenetrating circles but imagine this as being interpenetrating spheres so that in a certain sense, your point is on the periphery of my sphere, and my point is on the periphery of your sphere, and we are each at the center of our own spheres. Do you see what I'm getting at? Oh, yeah. And then we start to have all these interpenetrating spheres. You know? So then Miguel comes into the conversation, and we now have three interpenetrating spheres, a trinity of spheres. And we can start to multiply all of these interpenetrating mirrored spheres where each person is at the center of their own sphere and the others are on the uh, various points on the periphery, you know, but we're all in the same network, so to speak. We're all in the same um, grid of spheres. It reminds me of uh, the concept of Indra's net in Buddhism. Heard of that one, Lawrence? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're all, uh, <laughs> yeah, interpret. We're all connected, and there's an interpenetration between all of us, which are drops of light and reflections of each other. So that's definitely the Hindu way of doing it. And definitely another question I wanted to ask you, Lawrence, is that's the idea of beauty that uh, Plotinus said. I've always read into him that it's just basically our soul calling us from the higher places. But what would you say is the Neoplatonist concept of beauty? Yeah, it's very fascinating. Um, first of all, you have to kind of accept Plotinus and his presumptions that he definitely sees divinity as this oneness, as this unity. And so for him then, when we gaze on a work of art, 
the first thing we sense is a certain beauty, and that's more on the sensual level. But uh, at a, as we take one step up, because he's very much into these three levels of being Plotinus. So as we take one step up, we're now seeing not just the beauty of a work of art, but the harmony. And the harmony is the underlying kind of invisible structures that uh, produce the effect of beauty. Now, the harmony itself, and we have harmony in music, but we also have harmony in painting, ultimately comes back to unity, uh, that when something is harmonious, that means the multiplicity of notes resonate with each other in a certain way that's harmonious, and they have a certain oneness that makes them harmonious. And same thing with a painting, that when we see various things placed in a painting, well, if they're placed in these harmonious points, they unify and come together. So, uh, as Plotinus says, uh, when we look at a work of art and we feel beauty, finally we're recognizing the harmony, and higher up we're recognizing its oneness. And uh, that oneness in the work of art awakens the oneness in ourselves. And he says we call it a friend, we recognize it as friend, as, as not something foreign to ourselves, but as something innate and, and really in our deepest source of being. So his, his definition of beauty goes very far into this idea that beauty resides in harmony and beauty resides finally in the oneness of the work. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah, it is indeed. And again, uh, a lot to meditate upon. And uh, again, uh, and you would say the ancient Egyptians had this idea of visionary seeing or how did they influence us? Again, you, you write a lot about this in your book, which covers so much history and so many ideologies and movements. Yeah, well, one of my uh, principal interests is when you enter into visionary states, you're in a certain sense, drifting through your soul. You know, you are disembodied. You, you, um, you do not feel your body. You feel weightless. You feel like you're this spark of light or consciousness, as I said, in a mirrored sphere. And so uh, what are you experiencing in that state? Well, uh, many cultures have decided that you're actually experiencing your post-mortem existence in the visionary state. You're traveling through the cosmic spheres, but you're also traveling through the uh, afterlife experience. Now, uh, the Egyptians, you know, which is a civilization that lasted a good 3,000 years and had an organized priesthood and organized artists and craftsmen to uh, depict what the priests were then seeing in their visionary states, they were documenting or making these maps of the uh, places after death, so that when your soul journeys after death, where does it journey to? Well, you know, the Egyptians were mapping it all out over the course of their 3,000-year history. And so when you read the books of the dead or see them, they're actually um, carved onto the walls of the pharaoh's tombs. And when you stand there and try to understand this boat journey of the soul through the various gates of the underworld, um, <clears throat> you become aware that Egyptian civilization was very advanced in charting the netherworlds. 
other societies like tribal societies or Buddhism as well have been doing that as well for centuries. Uh, our Western way of looking at things, we're like beginners or juveniles, actually, when it comes to making maps of the afterworld. You know, we're so obsessed with uh, our present life existence and our technology and, and how our technology can prolong this present life that we're not quite so interested, although, you know, it is changing that uh, more and more um, people are becoming aware of uh, these ancient texts or Eastern texts and so on, and developing life practices based on preparation for um, this journey through the afterworld, basically. Yes, they, and they seem to be, they were almost like mapping the whole consciousness from beginning to end. And this later, would you say, really influenced the Greek mysteries or what other features or innovations that the Greeks give us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Greek mysteries, when you read, of course, they, they were mysteries. No one actually wrote what they experienced. But when we come close and we look at some of the, the texts that were left to us by people who had experienced it, they said they felt like uh, I put one foot on the threshold of Persephone's uh, underworld and came away with no, no longer fearing death. And uh, they no longer feared death because they had had a glimpse of, you know, what happens to the soul in the afterworld. So the mysteries were a kind of initiation to prepare you for death um, and pre prepare you in the sense of no longer feeling that fear uh, that naturally accompanies death because you're now prepared for what's on the other side. And, of course, that preparation could go deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, Buddhist monks in the East, they have a whole series of meditations and so on to prepare themselves for the journey after death. Uh, in ancient Greece, it was more like a ritual, and that ritual itself kind of engraved in the memory all the different steps or places or what to say and what not to say. You know, should you drink from the river of Leth? Well, the river of Leth is the river of forgetfulness. So if you don't drink from the river of Leth, then you, know, you will remember your past lives. And this goes back as far as uh, the Orphic uh, religion, which is one of the earliest Greek religions that we have, like 6th century uh, BC. Uh, Plato definitely was then quoting the Orphics on that and saying uh, with recollection, you know, that we have to unforget uh, everything we did forget when we drank from the river of less and we drank from the river of forgetfulness. Yes, like you said, it's a big secret. <laughs> the, the Greek mysteries, uh, if you, especially if you talk about uh, Demeter and all those, but uh, we get what we get. And I was, here's something I'm curious to ask you, Lawrence. I mean, the the Gnostics, the Neoplatonists, the, the Hermetics, you can say the Hermetics are pagan Gnostics, and uh, the Orphics later on, the Kabbalists and all that were, you might say, this uh, one divine mind emanationist uh, theology. What separates the Gnostics mm -hmm. was their introduction of the uh, introduction of the Archons, this sort of separate ontological evil or oppression. Do you uh, ever have a problem with that, uh, how it's different and how it can be kind of edgy, like, a, well, like the like the work of H.R. Geiger? Exactly. 
Yeah, I've uh, had people question me on that. You do well. all the time. <laughs> you know, when you look up at the sun, do you actually see Yalta Baloth, this lion-headed <laughs> serpent staring back at you, or or do you see the sun in this more positive light? Right, and uh, I, I just remind myself that the uh, uh, here I am with mirrors again, but it's a mirrored cosmos that the the lower eons are modeled on the upper eons, and so. For every negative interpretation that we have, you know, if I look on the sun or Venus or Mars and see the archon staring back at me, that really there's this upper eon cosmos where the sun and Venus and Mars also exist in the upper eons as those divine archetypes. You see what I'm getting at? Oh, yeah. I kind of love Gnosticism for that reason, that it gives us the darkness as well as the light and doesn't just say, hey, look, it's all light. That uh, the more we see the darkness and understand the darkness, you know, we're getting into Jung here and the unconscious, but the more we become aware of these forces of darkness that are acting through us, I think that's where the Gnostics are absolutely unique and powerful and meaningful for the times that we're living in. And I would go on to say that we're actually living in darkened times where uh, with the conspiracy theories and so on that we have, you know, Gnosticism resonates so much more strongly today than it did, say, during the Renaissance, which was kind of a Neoplatonic period of history, you know, everyone was looking at the light, uh, whereas now we can gaze into the darkness and see what's staring back at us, and that seems to be this Gnostic cosmos that we're describing. Mm, yes, a lot of shadows coming out, and it's interesting when you talk about the, the mirrored sphere and the one reflecting itself, uh, the scholar N.R. Thomason, he makes a good argument that uh, all the archons are not separate. They're all an aspect of Yaldabaoth. They're all just a reflection of Yaldabaoth. So you have these two, the one mind and Yaldabaoth at the bottom, and that's it. <laughs> well, that's where uh, the Anthropos comes in, you know, that uh, there are these, uh, in, in a lot of Gnostic texts, there are three levels or forms of the Anthropos. And so you have this pneumatic or spiritual Anthropos, which is the divine image of man in all its perfection. And then you have the soulful or psychic anthropos, which is created by Yaltabaoth and his archons, you know, and becomes the, the uh, demonic image of man in all its kind of evil machinations. And then finally there's that third anthropos, the uh, hylic or material anthropos, which is our material humanity created from earth, air, fire, and water, but, you know, this base matter that you get in alchemy, the the prima materia. And so we as human beings, we have to uh, acknowledge ourselves, you know, as the uh, higher, uh, the, the higher man, the, the uh, upper anthropos, you know, the spiritual anthropos. But at the same time, we have within our very you know, make up uh, this psychic anthropos, which surrenders itself to all the machinations of evil that are controlling it from above through the planets and so on, as well as, you know, our actual physical existence. So I, I, I love Gnosticism for that reason, that it gives us this model in which to situate ourselves in the cosmos. Uh, 
it's hermetic in that sense of as as above, so below. Right. You know that we have cosmos in us, and the outer cosmos, the planets, and so on, are influencing us all the time. Now, uh, I want to come back to that idea that it's not just the archons who are influencing us, but also the upper aeonic angelic beings. You know, they're also there, and uh, we can call upon them or, or uh, re you know, reflect them in our souls, this twinship and, again, mirroring that goes on in Gnosticism. They, they love the image of the mirror. They use it all the time. And, you know, does your vision seek out and see mirror images of the lower eons of the demons or does it see mirror images of the angels in the upper eons it all depends on where you are in your soul at that moment right and where you turn your gaze basically also interesting and let me know your thoughts on this lawrence but uh you talk about visionary art and we talked about artists from blake to geiger to uh, alex gray and uh, it seems deconstruction seems to be a great feature of visionary art. If there's something the Gnostics did is they were deconstructing everything around them. And that that uh, annoyed other movements like the, the Jews and the Neoplatonists and the Christians. So do you find it uh, another great uh, feature of the Gnostics, how they just tore everything apart to really weave into their visions? I think that's actually a, a quality of uh, an epiphany that uh, when you have a revelation, when you have a genuine experience of awe and wonder of the divine, you then seek out any and all images, words, traditions that will uh, authentically describe or replicate that experience. So the Gnostics, you know, who were living in Alexandria, which was this melting pot of Christian, Jewish, uh, I say Egyptian, but the uh, almost forgotten Egyptian traditions, uh, as well as the Greek and Roman, they, they, they had these genuine visionary experiences or mystical experiences, and they just used whatever was at hand to describe it. So that's where you see in the texts all this blending of all the different uh, things. And and like you said, not just blending, but subverting, you know, turning things on their heads so that the, uh, the story of the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, that whole story gets turned on its head. And uh, I, I love Gnosticism for that because it's absolutely, it's subversive, but at the same time it's creative. You know, they don't, fall into orthodoxy at all. They don't treat the word or the image as so sacred and inviolate that all we can do is transmit it without altering it, you know? Um, and so visionary art also has that quality insofar as, for example, in my work, I will blend Christ with an image of Vishnu from the Hindu tradition or Horus from the Egyptian tradition. And um, Christ is not this image that, you know, for, for an Orthodox Christian, that would be sacrilege. That would right. be uh, heresy. And, uh, you know, we all love the... It, it, fundamentally, we love being the heretics. We love being the outsiders. <laughs> we love being the provocateurs, if you want. But, uh, that force people to think a little bit. That forces them to view something from a different angle. And that's what... The, I mean, I started as a Christian, and what Gnosticism did for me was allow me to escape the narrow confines of my Christian prison 
and then see Christianity from this much broader point of view. And I'm forever grateful for Gnosticism for doing that to me without destroying the Christianity. They were, they were so deeply uh, immersed in their, and I don't want to say faith, but immersed in their uh, awareness of divinity and its presence in their lives, that uh, there's an authenticity to all of their writings that doesn't make it just a kind of a forced play, you know? It, it, it's actually, they're breaking things apart and uh, reusing them, but they're doing it for this deeper purpose, and that's the genuine mystical experience at the core of everything they do. And that's the Gnosis, of course. That's some great Gnosis you have there, Lawrence. And uh, moving on into uh, how to get a visionary state and so forth, and you talk about this in your book, Sacred Codes, but one of the ways you talk about this, how to alter your state of mind, get yourself prepared, your own mini-initiation, if you would, is uh, entheogens. Tell us about your, uh, your stance and usage of entheogens for visionary art. Yeah, so for those who are not familiar with the term, uh, we used to say psychedelics, we still do, but uh, an entheogen is to generate uh, the divine from within, that's the literal meaning, and the idea being that a lot of these substances are simply plants, and so in many other cultures they're considered to be sacred plants, and um, they're considered to be sacred plants because they do indeed uh, provoke visions. And once our culture kind of gets past that uh, major barrier to, to uh, accepting that we can indeed uh, take this fruit of the tree, uh, which is, this, you know, the, the entheogen, and... Uh, Again, we come back to the Gnostics who inverted that primordial myth at the foundation of our culture, you know, that Adam and Eve stood before this tree and this tree offered a fruit and God said, if you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. So, yes, you know, <laughs> uh, they eat of the fruit and their eyes were opened, right? Um, and the question being, well, are we banished and should we no longer eat the fruit of the sacred plant or should we continue to eat the fruit of the sacred plant and to continue to open our eyes and see as the gods see these are all words from the book of genesis so um definitely in gnostic culture i would argue and, and certainly in other cultures like tribal cultures um you know we eat the sacred plants to have the visions and uh on the other hand I believe that the sacred plants are one means, you know, and as you go deeper into that whole thing, there are other means, which is to say uh, it could be dreams, it could be meditation or contemplation or so on. And I treat them all equally. I don't say one's natural and one's not natural. They're, they're all uh, means of attaining visions. And, uh, and yes, there are hallucinations within the visionary sphere. We shouldn't forget that that not everything we see in the visionary sphere is, you know, a divine revelation, that often we're caught in these archontic worlds where the archons are deceiving us, uh, where demons are altering our visions and we have to be aware of that. So, uh, 
So the visionary journey with sacred plants uh, is a a tradition that's been going on, say, in the Amazon with ayahuasca for generations and generations, and they've trained their shamans to enter into those spaces, whereas uh, we in our culture, again, we become the children, the, the, uh, the, the, the beginners in this area, um, but hopefully we can bring all our intelligence to bear and our heart and souls at the same time mm. to really explore those areas. And that's where we're kind of at the cutting edge, you know, as in visionary art, but even in, in consciousness studies and so on, uh, that uh, our culture is finally breaking past those taboos and, and engaging, you know, the different forms of consciousness that emerge when we're in that visionary state. I could go into more details, but that kind of is the general outlook. Um, yes, no, this is great. And uh, there is one part of the book where, speaking of dreams, you actually had some dreams, and they would later come real when you met your master, right? I mean, you were something was moving you to where you needed to be. Yeah, well, that's where it's interesting is, uh, speaking autobiographically, I was uh, actively recording my dreams and uh, going very, very deep into dreams and dreaming and the way dreaming can point the path to live in your life. Um, And I actually had my first entheogenic experience at the age of 33 when I was living in Munich at the time. So I came to entheogens quite late after having uh, trodden the dream path for for a good 20 years, you know, really intensely getting into dreams. Um, So dreaming being simply another form of thinking or consciousness, but now we're in that mirrored sphere of images, you know, that take narrative form that become very mythic and symbolic. And uh, once we learn to elucidate all of the images that are given us, we can actually start to see the messages that are coming to us. So in my case, yeah, when I met my master in uh, this, I, we actually met in Monaco, so in the south of France. Uh, no, that's not true, sorry. I worked with him in Monaco. We met in the south of Austria in uh, a chapel that he was painting. And when I met him in this chapel in the south of Austria, I came to realize that a lot of the dreams I was having were actually leading to that moment. But I couldn't have predicted that, you know. It it was one of those retroactive understandings where all of these images and so on were pointing towards this moment. What's kind of nice is that uh, he passed away three years ago, and uh, he always appeared to me in my dreams before I met him, during the time that I was working with him. But now that he's gone, I continue to have dreams of him. And these dreams really helped me to uh, lead this painting academy in Vienna, where I am right now, because his presence is very much there. And uh, if you accept the fact that he's kind of on this eternal plane, and we're here in linear time, then it's not that unusual for him to dip in and out of linear time right. you know, and offer us little signs along the way for where we're going. But it's nice to have that person up there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we all need all the help we can get. And yes, death is not the end. It's just part of the process. And yes, it's great that the universe is full of beings, aeons, and old friends that are always there to help us out. 